0: This is Asha Voices. I'm J.D. Gray. As 2021 draws to a close, it's natural to take stock of the year's events. What was memorable over the past 12 months? For me, it was the conversations I've had with audiologists and speech-language pathologists while putting together this podcast. And today, we're going to listen to a few highlights from this year. On this episode, we're playing three stories from 2021. We hear from an SLP returning home to the Navajo Nation to find himself in a fight against COVID-19. From a neuro expert shining a light on brain injury in sports and about portrayals of hearing loss in the movies. Here, are highlights from the podcast in 2021 on ASHA Voices. Our first clip comes from a conversation with SLP Joshua Allison Burbank. And what better time for it? November is Native American Heritage Month. Today, Joshua is an assistant scientist at Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. But in February of 2020, Joshua had joined Northern Navajo Medical Center as part of the Indian Health Service after living away from the Navajo Nation for 15 years. In that time, Joshua became an SLP and received his doctorate. When he returned, Navajo Nation was quickly besieged by the pandemic, and Joshua found himself playing a different role in the community than the one he had imagined. At the beginning of our conversation, Joshua delivered a traditional Navajo greeting.
1: Good morning, Asha. Thank you for having me. My name is Joshua Allison Burbank, and thank you for that very kind introduction. I am joining you from the Navajo Nation. I currently work as a speech-language pathologist with the Indian Health Service.
0: COVID-19 spread rapidly through the Navajo Nation. Joshua says he arrived ready to jump into clinical work, but he soon found himself working outdoors as a part of an emergency department triage facility.
1: The Saagi is how you say COVID-19 in the Navajo language. It refers to a cough. It refers to the moment it came, 2019. T'ikotsin in hast its ada.
0: It was a challenging time for Joshua, and in our conversation, he told me a story he drew inspiration from during this time. The story of the twin warriors.
1: And a Navajo creation story, we believe that the first person to be created and to arrive was was a woman, a young girl who turned into a white shell woman. White Shell woman bore twin boys. And those twin boys were charged with protecting the people that were starting to come to earth. They're starting to be created. The the Navajo people were starting to expand. But during this time, there was also monsters, creatures that were impacting the people and causing harm. The twin warriors, one being monster slayer and one being child born of water, went to their father, the son, to learn a new skill, to get tools to bring back to the Navajo Nation, to the Nebukeya, is how you say it, the Na- land of the Navajo, to get rid of those monsters. I live in a very special part of the Navajo Nation. It's called Cebu and it's in reference to a landmark in the Four Corners region. Cebu means the winged rock, and on the winged rock is where we, the Navajo believe there was once a monster that lived up there, a winged monster. And that winged monster used to cause a lot of harm and the twin warriors were called on to restore that balance and just take care of this creature to kill it. Monster Slayer was very successful in working with his brother and using the tools from his parents to kill the monsters to protect the people. Today, what I've seen is retelling of this story. I've had many community members and I've also told Mayan children this story of the monster and presenting Dick Saigi as a monster that has come back to take over and try to ravage and harm the Navajo people. So in daily prayers and daily storytelling, this story of Monster Slayer overcoming and killing the monster and seeing that that rock was cleared and that rock is a reminder of this important story to Navajos. What I've seen over the past year are my colleagues, my partner, my my coworkers go and resort to the spirit of monster slayer to take on this new monster that has come to the Navajo nation. The Kosen Saigi is being handled and it's being, there are five people are fighting back and it's our frontline workers, our allied health professionals, our, these other essential workers in our tribal communities, our tribal leaders who are calling on monster slayer to get rid of the Kosen Saegi. That gift that the twin warriors got from their father were lightning lightning rods. And that story of monster slayer using the lightning rods to kill the monster is very applicable to what I see frontline workers here on the Navajo Nation doing, standing tall, standing united and fighting back against this monster. And this is a story I tell my children all the time. Oral tradition is very important to my family and other indigenous people. It's because it helps these children make connections to what's happening around them in their world. And this story of monster slayer is a story of resilience. It's a story of overcoming. It's a story of battle and fighting. What better way to empower our youth especially Navajo youth, by telling them a story of something that's happened and to be in a space where we can actually see where these battles happen. And then to, on a daily basis, talk about the inner battles we're having in response to COVID, but to also see our colleagues and family members, those frontline workers, fight back against the Kosen Saigi. To me, that's what gets us through this pandemic and it's what's gonna get us through future adverse experiences that native people face. This traditional knowledge, these traditional stories that have always been there and are a reminder of how we can overcome and how we can build self-efficacy and how we can focus on ourselves. I'm excited to get the story out. There's different versions of the story and there's different interpretations of this important creation story. But what matters is that there was someone, a Navajo, Twin warriors who fought back against monsters and killed them and helped save the people, help keep people, the Navajo people, safe. And I think we'll get to that point where we can celebrate that and we can tell our own stories of how healthcare workers here on the Navajo Nation had their own lightning rods and were able to kill the Osansaigi.
0: The Navajo Department of Health reports 70% of those eligible to be fully vaccinated in the Navajo Nation are, but cases persist. And as with the rest of the U.S., the Navajo Nation is still finding the virus, dealing with a spike that appears to have started sometime in July. As I mentioned earlier, Joshua is now with the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health, where he works out of the Center for American Indian Health. Joshua says he still practices as a part-time SLP with the Navajo Nation Growing in Beauty Early Intervention Program. In April, I spoke with SLP Elena Davis, a faculty member at Howard University. Elena also runs a private practice called Overall Neuro Rehab, and she raises awareness of the causes and effects of brain injuries through her thoughtfully crafted social media posts and podcast. Elena shares stories from the basketball court, the football field, and in the case of this conversation, the boxing ring. I asked Elena about a popular Instagram post she made about a boxing match between YouTube influencer Jake Paul and former NBA player Nate Robinson.
2: Nate Robinson was a former basketball player who decided that he wanted to go into boxing, and he went into this major fight within a year of training. I did watch his fight, and you could just see like, that the his form and the way that he was throwing his punches was different than people that you've watched that are a little more trained or I guess pro considered to be pro athletes, right?
0: Or like professional boxers.
2: Yeah. And you could hear the commentators cuz they had Snoop Dogg as one of the commentators <laughs> and he kept saying, "He's not doing any defense. He's just all over the place." And I think that that opens him up to be able to be hit in a way that really took him down, I would say on the first major hit that he had to the back of his head. Because in boxing, They are trained to be able to take hits in a way that it doesn't hurt them as much. They are trained to have a certain level of defense so that punches don't take them all the way out. But I think he might have just been nervous because this was his first fight. But by the time he got hit the second time, it just completely knocked him out. And so in the post, I described the areas or the lobes of the brain where he was hit. And so his first hit was in the back of the head, which would affect the occipital lobe. And so that first hit probably affected some of his visual acuity. And the cerebellum is back there, which helps us with our equilibrium and balance. Because he was, after that hit, you could tell that his balance was not very good. The second big hit that actually knocked him out was on the side of the head, which was more like around the temporal lobe and frontal lobe. When you have damage in that area as well, where the frontal lobe is, there's a lot of motor activity that comes into play that can knock you out or kind of affect also, you know, how you move the rest of your body. But he was just, he just was completely out.
0: You write in your post, a hit with that level of force can cause diffuse axonal injury in which the brain twists around within the skull and damages the nerves in many areas of the brain. That makes me squirm just reading it, your knowledge of brain injury, has that changed the way that you watch sporting events like this and your ability to can enjoy an event like this, knowing how much damage could be occurring inside the head?
2: Yes. And, and I don't know if I would say that it changed because I've always been a bit leery of boxing because I could never understand why someone would want to get hit multiple times. But when I watch that or even mixed martial arts, It makes my heart race. Uh, It makes my stomach turn a little bit because all I can think about is what is happening to the brain. So it is hard to enjoy the sports.
0: When you hear of maybe family members that want to play sports, are you concerned? Do you ever feel like you want to jump in and, and share your concern?
2: Definitely. You know, I'm always like, if you need me to test your child, let me know. I can do some baseline testing. So if something, just in case if something happens, I don't want it to, but I can see if there's any changes. I've probably gotten on their nerves a bit, but you know, I'm not against sports at all. I think that, you know, sports are, they're a great way of building social skills and they keep kids busy and things like that. But If they post on social media that something happens, I'm like calling them (laughs) on the side. One of my nieces is a competitive cheerleader and I have tested her baseline testing. She's actually been kicked in the head, but she's been okay. But they know that they can call me if they need me.
0: Learn more about Elena Davis. She's featured in the November issue of the Asha Leader magazine's Limelight column. Find a link to the article on the blog post for this episode at on.asha.org/podcast. Just before the 2021 Academy Awards, I gathered a roundtable that included audiologists Peter Ivory and Michelle Hu, and Miami University Comparative Media Studies Associate Professor Mac Haygood, who writes about hearing loss in media. The conversation was spurred, in part, by Oscar nominations for the film Sound of Metal, which tells the story of Ruben Stone, a musician experiencing sudden hearing loss and tinnitus. Mac wrote about on-screen portrayals of tinnitus in an article titled The Tinnitus Trope of Acoustic Trauma in Narrative Film for an online scholarly publication called The Cinephiles. I asked Mac to tell me about how Sound of Metal fits into that history.
3: Yeah, sure. I mean, there's a long at this point, long history of the portrayal of tinnitus on screen. And that portrayal usually consists of some pretty predictable effects. There's this high-pitched sine wave type tone that we hear, sometimes maybe two tones. And then a lot of the environmental sound around the character is filtered through a low-pass filter. So we lose a lot of the high-frequency sounds. So we get this kind of muffled kind of sound of of the environment around the character. And so this has been a way of showing acoustic trauma and also using acoustic trauma and this sort of what we call point of audition sound where the audience member is put in the position of the character in the film and hears through their ears, so to speak, using this as a way to dramatize trauma. And I was really interested because in the early 2000s, this just started becoming very, very common. And there wasn't much written on it in film studies. There was one article that suggested that maybe this had popped up because of advancements in sound technology that allowed filmmakers to use this effect. Is it something digital, maybe? Yeah, well, it, the person made the argument that it was the adoption of Dolby noise reduction in the 1970s. That actually allowed filmmakers to use higher frequency sounds than they used to. So I kind of decided to kind of pursue this in a couple of different ways in my research. One, I was like, well, do any films come before Dolby noise reduction that have this tinnitus trope? And I found out actually there was one in 1970, a comedy called The Out of Towners (laughs) that has like an exploding manhole cover and it's used for comical effect. There's like this ringing sound and the guy's shaking his head. So that was a real that was like the first one that I could find. And it was decades before anyone else portrayed Tinnitus in this way again in film. I also decided to use frequency analysis to see if it was true that these were frequencies that couldn't be reproduced in before the mid 1970s. Turns out, no, this isn't true, that that these are frequencies that could have been portrayed in the 70s or earlier, but just weren't. So then I was just asking myself, okay, well, it, it must be something cultural then? Like, is there a cultural explanation for this? And one of the things that I noticed was, there were some late 90s is when this, really started to become something that people were doing. And Saving Private Ryan, the war film, was um, the first example that most people can think of that, that had this effect. But it didn't really catch on until about 2003 when suddenly there was just this explosion of films that were representing tinnitus in this way. It was in like The Lord of the Rings, Master and Commander, Hellboy, The Pianist, Children of Men just tons and tons of films. And I started to wonder if this might have something to do with
0: 9-11
3: because, you know, typically in Hollywood films, when there were explosions, it was as if people had steel eardrums, you know, that was like, there were these (laughs) huge consequence-free explosions. And then the hero just like walked through the, the ball of flame or whatever, and came out <laughs> apparently unscathed in terms of his ears. And, and I started to wonder if after the events of nine eleven 11 and, and the, the collapse of the towers and so forth, that it just didn't feel right to have these huge traumatic explosions and not have them affect people, you know, like the entire nation had been through a trauma. And then at the same time, we were starting to get all these service members back from the Middle East and tinnitus was the number one complaint, traumatic brain injuries, PTSD, which, you know, are related to tinnitus, all of these things were popping up. And so I felt that perhaps, and, you know, you can't say these things for sure, but perhaps that, that sort of cultural environment that we're living in now made this kind of representation of tinnitus make more sense. There's one more possibility I could I could raise. Yeah. What would that be? In the old days of say like film noir in the 1940s when you have like the private detective and he's you know going through the the city in search of of the criminal or what have you, interiority, the self was represented through an interior voice. And at the same time another way that the self was represented was through voices in people's head. So trauma, psychological issues were kind of represented through these voices that a character would hear in their heads that were portrayed on screen. But by the time we get into the 2000s, that kind of psychological Freudian version of the self has been changed because we've gotten used to thinking of ourselves um, as a kind of neuronal self. What do you mean by neuronal self? well we're used to you know ideas of like brain scans and we understand a lot more about the neurons and we, and we have these ideas well when something happens this area of your brain lights up right mm-hmm. and we also got used to these therapeutic psychological drugs or psychiatric drugs like ssris that are operating on the brain so culturally we've come to start to think of ourselves more as brains rather than these kinds of Freudian selves with an subconscious and stuff. And what are we hearing when we hear the tinnitus trope on screen? It's the sound of a brain being damaged, right? It's the sound of an auditory system in a brain and neurons being affected rather than that kind of old school vision of what the self is.
0: An interesting idea. Uh, Peter, Michelle, any
4: response to this? Well, you know, tinnitus is associated with a lot of things. I mean, that's one of the problems in in working with patients who have tinnitus as a presenting complaint is that there are many potential causes of it. And therefore, that makes our ability to sort of have an appropriate intervention that much more challenging in order to uh, try to help them.
0: Peter Ivory.
4: And, And the complication, of course, then is that tinnitus is a kind of condition that there may be a physiological event going on that then leads to psychological consequences. So it's, you know, you might've heard of the term uh, psychosomatic, where a person imagines that they have a somatic or physical problem. Know, this is just the converse. It's a, a somatopsychic condition in which the person really has some kind of physical thing. We just can't, find it. Could we put on a scan and find where's the wave and now do something antiphasic, you know, have them wear a hat that's got some kind of antiphasic tinnitus, you know, eliminator or something like that. But since there's so many potential causes, we can only kind of do a a handful of things to try to reduce the likelihood of it occurring. Tinnitus has likely been around as long as there's been, you know, consistent loud sounds causing noise exposure, uh, hearing loss, which is the nominal cause of what's happening with Rubin here. And uh, as well, the title sound of metal, uh, if you ever heard metal banging together, that's one of the largest causes of noise-induced hearing loss, saws, any kind of machinery. You know, we think of this starting in the Industrial Revolution in the 1700s is really, you know, when all these big machines, printing, typesetting, all of these sort of industrial tools. Not surprisingly, the deaf people at that time found employment there because guess what the noise didn't bother them and so you know it was always the case that that uh, the deaf people worked in the typesetting in the printing industries so historically there's there's some connections and and sort of the, even the name sound of metal uh was was a, a you know a brilliant choice for a movie
0: Support for the original episode that includes this clip comes from the Hannon Center. Are you looking for ways to offer effective family-centered intervention online? The Hannon Center helps you reach more families using a research-based approach that offers individualized early language intervention via telepractice. Visit hannon.org telepractice. To find the full conversation about hearing loss on screen and hear guest Michelle Hu give her take on Sound of Metal as an audiologist with hearing loss, visit on.esha.org slash podcast. You can also find the full conversations with SLPs Joshua Allison Burbank and Elena Davis on the website. We'll be back in two weeks with a conversation with Michael Kidd-Gilchrist about his advocacy work for people who stutter. He also tells us about the SLP he worked with at the University of Kentucky. She helped him prepare for press interviews. ASHA Voices is produced by the American Speech Language Hearing Association and comes from the team behind the ASHA Leader Magazine. Production assistance for ASHA Voices comes from Pamela Lawrence, I'm J.D. Gray, and this is ASHA Voices.